Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 160. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk to Dr. Jared Burks about his work with geophysical detection of archaeological sites and features. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, long day for you today, huh? Oh boy, has it ever been. <laughs> it started out today, we had to literally move a tree out of the way on the path we were on. <laughs> then we did a lot of bushwhacking and then we backed out and went ridge top to ridge top. And so it's just been going and going and going. Mm. Our last little uh, jaunt out, it took us 45 minutes on terrible, terrible two track just to get back to a, the mining hall road. Mm. And that's still a ways out. So yeah, we had a long, long day, but it looks like it's going to rain over the next couple of days. So we figured we'd do longer day to day. Expecting that we'll have short days, you know, for the rest of the uh, the project. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, yeah, Paul, for those who didn't hear last week's episode or last episode on the Archaeotech podcast, is out here in northern Nevada with me on a project. And actually, he's been going out with my uh, with my wife. She's the crew chief on this project. So Crazy. they're tooling around and yep, and doing stuff on the on the crazy high desert and high elevation mountains of northeastern Nevada. So good times all around. Yeah, it's been a great learning experience, but wow. Yeah. Well, what one thing we can't do here uh, in these project areas is typically, you know, most geophysical surveys because <laughs> it's like solid rock underneath our feet. <laughs> so <laughs> there's not a lot of soil deposition. So there wouldn't be too much of that. But our guest today is going to talk about some of that stuff that he's done over in the East Coast and the central Ohio Valley and, and those areas. Dr. Jared Burks, how you doing? Uh, doing good. All right. So... As usual, we're all over the place. Paul and I happen to be in the same location, but Jared, you're over in Ohio right now. So anybody hears any weird things on the internet, I like to just call that out. Plus, like I said, Paul is in a is in a laundry room by the router. So there could be some wind noise and some some reverb and stuff like that. It's yeah, just the natural noises you hear. Yeah. It's not because this place is haunted. It's because there's a really squeaky vent up above. <laughs> we usually try to be pretty good about our sound environment, but there's not a whole lot we can do about it when we're in the field. So Anyway, Paul, you saw some presentations that Dr. Burks did. You want to talk about that to introduce the topic today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've had Eric Olson on this podcast a couple of times in the past, and uh, he's always been a very enthusiastic, very engaging guest. Actually, he guest hosted once <laughs> when you couldn't make mm -hmm, it. Yeah. And he told me that, hey, you know, since you're getting back into CRM, well, back into, I've never been in CRM before, but since you're getting back into archaeology and going to CRM, widen your horizons. Take a look at Ohio archaeology. We're doing a lot of great things. And by the way, we've got the uh, Ohio Archaeology Council annual meeting coming up. It's going to be hosted remotely on, on YouTube, I think it was. Uh, it's certainly some of the, the discussions are now posted on YouTube, and we'll put that link in the notes afterwards. 
And as it worked out, I actually could watch a little bit of it. One of the presentations I watched was uh, Jared Brooks's, where he was doing magnetometry surveys of um, great circles, if I recall. It's archaeology that I'm not particularly familiar with. It's you know some terminology that I am familiar with, but not the area, not the region. But what I was really, really impressed with was just the um, the clarity of the magnetometry that that you're getting, much better than anything I'd seen before. And so I said, Hey, I have to, you know, we have to have him on. We have to discuss what he's doing and why he's doing it and how he's doing it. Because I think this would be of interest to, uh, to our listeners. So yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that was the genesis of this. <laughs> so let's, let's kick this off. And Jared, can you tell us and our audience, for those of that might not be familiar, because I, I work a lot in the West. And to be honest, there aren't a lot of geophysical surveys that happen in a lot of the high desert areas of the West. So some of our audience may not be aware. What is a magnetometer survey? I did this back in college in grad school, but just give us a little primer on magnetometry. Well, a magnetometer detects the Earth's magnetic field. So it's pretty simple in that regard. It's mm-hmm. a passive instrument. doesn't emit any kind of transmissions. So you carry it back and forth across a site while it typically while it automatically logs readings. And uh, what we're looking for are kind of small area changes in the Earth's magnetic field that might be associated with archaeological features. In particular, the magnetometer is pretty good at detecting burned things, accumulations of topsoil in pits that have been dug into clay subsoil. It's also quite good at detecting iron objects. Maybe too good, especially those pin flags everybody uses to <laughs> mark their shovel test locations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know uh, much of the physics behind this? Because I'm curious. I don't. I don't remember from grad school how a magnetometer that's detecting small changes in the Earth's magnetic field. How does like disturbed soil or like a burn feature affect the Earth's magnetic field? That's a good question, and I do know that part primarily because I'm an archaeologist, and that's the kind of stuff we <laughs> dig up. <laughs> So there are different chemical reactions in topsoil versus subsoil. And mm-hmm. as long as there is some iron presence, some you know, various iron minerals present, like hematite and magnetite in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's another, there's a third one called magmite, and that's the most magnetic one. So these three minerals in particular, uh, because of the the oxidation and uh, other things that happen in that topsoil zone, they kind of cycle back and forth amongst, you know, they change back and forth. And um, there are certain processes that happen. And some of this stuff is kind of unknown and it's, you know, still under study, but um, even bacteria get involved in the process. And Hmm. these minerals transform into the more magnetic types, making that Hmm. topsoil more magnetic versus what's going on in the subsoil where there's less of that transformation happening. So there's just this natural increase in magnetism or, or magnetic susceptibility, you know, in the topsoil. The burning bit is kind of similar to that, but there's an added element. And that is if, if these minerals are present and the temperature of the fire gets above a certain point known as a Curie point, something like 600 degrees centigrade or so, then um, those those minerals, the, the magnetic signature, let's say, of those minerals kind of gets gets released and it points toward the most magnetic thing, which is often the Earth's North Pole. Mm-hmm. And then when the temperature cools down, it, they get stuck pointing in that direction. And, and if enough of those minerals 
end up pointing in the same direction. That that magnetic moment um, is much stronger, you know, than the ground around it. And in fact, that's the source of archaeomagnetic dating. Yeah, because the Earth's magnetic field has changed over time, so we can detect where they're pointing basically if it's undisturbed right as as opposed to where the earth's magnetic field is now that's the difference that's being detected yeah right that, yeah that difference yeah. okay yeah are there are there certain soils that uh are more conducive to you know becoming more magnetic so to speak <laughs> yeah you bet so for example i can tell you that sandy soils aren't terribly magnetic and thankfully we don't have very many of those in ohio yeah. Um, but there are regions that are, have lots of sandy soil. So there will be soil types that are, we, we might call them magnetically quiet. So when you do a magnetic survey across them, you see very little variability, whether there's archaeology there or not. Mm-hmm. And you could plow those quiet sites and you'd never see the plow marks. Hmm. Whereas on on magnetically busy sites, if you plow them, even if the top of the ground is flat, those plow scars below, you know, where the plow's gone a little bit deeper into the subsoil, right. they'll they'll show up, you know, bright as day in a magnetic survey. Hmm. Wow. Um, but but what's handy is usually those magnetically noisier um, soils, if people live on those landscapes and people living in a place increases its magnetism too because they burn things they bring in organic material that those little magnetotactic bacteria like to chew on and so people living on a spot can enhance a soil's magnetic potential as well it's a process that's referred to as magnetic susceptibility so Mm -hmm. um, human Mm -hmm. habitation yeah impacts magnetic susceptibility yeah so that's a, a an easy way believe it or not we can sometimes use the intensity of plow marks to sort of map uh, the distribution of archaeological midden. Okay. So you're not just looking though, I mean, from your presentation and actually there's uh, the previous year's OAC presentation on YouTube, which we'll also link in the show notes. You're not just looking at what dispersed evidence of people's activity, doing things in a certain area, burning things, whatever, but you also have a, uh, uh, a distinct focus on earthworks or at least in, the presentations, the two presentations of yours that I've seen, how do those earthquakes affect the, the uh, magnetic susceptibility? Yeah. So my day job is, you know, all things archaeological and cemeteries. I spent a lot of time there. And then my personal research and my kind of my preservation hat is surveying these these things we call earthworks. In particular, they're, they're ditch and embankment enclosures, so circles and squares and octagons and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all all built something like um, 1,800 to 2,200 years ago in the Ohio Valley here. And because a lot of those enclosures involve digging ditches down into the subsoil, so that's below the topsoil and down into that less magnetic subsoil, if those ditches become filled with topsoil, which they pretty much all do eventually um, mm-hmm. through erosion and plowing, then you've got a whole a big old pile of topsoil there, uh, you know, on a landscape where the topsoil is usually pretty thin. So that spot will be more magnetic. Oh, so, I get it. And then, interestingly, you know, we, we've surveyed enough of these now that we can see how it varies from river valley to river valley. So where I live in in the center of the state in the Scioto River Valley, soils here are amazingly magnetic. 
Mm-hmm. So it's it's typically pretty easy to find these earthworks. Um, they're, they're really obvious, as as you maybe saw in the magnetic data. But like the next valley over to the east, the soil there is is just different enough. Probably different geology there, you know, different bedrock. Certainly different glacial activity there. Mm-hmm. They're they're a lot more quiet, so it's a little harder to find the earthworks there. We may be jumping mm-hmm. ahead of ourselves here, but do you have to recalibrate your tools or your your clean up of the data afterwards in order to account for those different soil types and different susceptibility in different places? Well, I'll tell you what, you have to, you, you should be really careful in data collection, no matter, you know, how magnetic the ground is, of course, and, and make sure you're not magnetic when you're collecting data, especially <laughs> if you're carrying a magnetometer. Yes. Um, I've lately, I've been, I mean, I started off carrying a magnetometer, so, you know, I had to be very careful not to wear magnetic clothing. Right. And I will admit my very first magnetic survey that meant anything to the world, I ended up having magnetic shoes on. <laughs> I was going to so, say, you probably had metal grommets yeah. on your laces, right? Something like that. Uh, they were basketball shoes and they didn't look terribly magnetic, but they must have been so cheap. Maybe they were made with uh, tire rubber or something. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see just about every step I took, you know, in the magnetic day. Oh, it's like, no. hmm, that looks a little strange. I've never seen that before in the publications. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, from from then forward, I always test new shoes against the magnetometer. And I've even <laughs> taken the magnetometer into the shoe store, you know. Oh, I know hilarious. this may look weird, but I need to make sure that these shoes aren't magnetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Things you do in the field, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. things when you, you wouldn't know unless you've been told or you screwed it up once. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you forget some of your critical clothing, uh, you know, like your, your magnetometer shoes, you have to go to pay less and try to find some cheap shoes. (laughs) Nice. Nice. So, you know, we're going to go to break here in a few minutes, but I'm wondering just in general, you mentioned to us when you booked this appointment that you've worked with, you know, magnetometry, of course, ground penetrating radar, resistivity, you've done metal detecting, all kinds of stuff. Have you found that in general, like if somebody was going to get into one of these things, like in general, something is one of those techniques is often more applicable than others, or is it just the right tool for the right job and everything's different? Yes and yes. Uh, I'd have to (laughs) say though, that it will depend on where you're working and what you're looking for. So I chose to start with a magnetometer because it works so good in the region where I was doing mm-hmm. most of my work. Sure. Uh, and also my PhD is in pre-contact period, you know, American Indian archaeology. Mm-hmm. And so that's holes excavated into soil that are filled with soil. That's very yeah. tricky for the radar to detect, yeah. especially at the relatively low densities 20 years ago that we could do with the radar. So since we were mostly working on those pre-contact period sites, um, the magnetometer made the most sense. Since then, of course, we've added other instruments as, as we started to do more historic period surveys and cemetery surveys and all that, you know, so the next, the next tool, well, actually it was the third tool, I think was the ground penetrating radar. Hmm. They're also expensive. You know, you have to. You may need to slowly build up your toolkit. Mm-hmm. So some yeah. thought should be put into you know which one should I get first. Yeah, we used to joke. Uh, my advisor's project in the Middle East, they did GPR and it didn't work worth a damn on their site. So they called it the ground non-penetrating radar. Uh, <laughs> but then they did magnetometry with some good results, and then 
yeah. another one of my uh, my cohort, another project they worked on, they tried the same thing, and it was entirely the opposite. The GPR was great, and the magnetometry was awful. So uh, there was yeah. soil types yeah. and the architecture that they were looking for, and so on. But uh, yeah, tool for the job, I guess, is important. Yeah, that's why it's often a good idea to know what it is you're looking for, you know, have an objective. And if you can know a little bit mm. about how it appears in different kind of data sets. And, you know, we often try to bring more than one instrument. Yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, we are close enough to the end of this segment that we're going to take a break and then come back and continue talking all things geophysical with Dr. Jared Burks back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 160. And Paul and I are talking to Dr. Jared Burks about geophysical surveys and all kinds of things that he's done. You know, one of the things that you sent us over is you've done a lot of geophysical survey in the CRM industry in Ohio. Is that, is that where your day job is or you work with a, for a CRM company or a CRM firm? Yep. Yeah, that's my day okay. job. It has been for about 20 years. Wow. Well, there you go. And that's really cool because as I was saying earlier, I've worked, I've worked in the Southeast. I've actually worked in Ohio, worked in the Northeast, but worked mostly in the West. (laughs) No, I've worked in the Southeast and Ohio. (laughs) It depends on the conference you're attending. (laughs) That's true. That's true. But anyway, so I've worked, I've worked all over the country, but I've worked mostly in the West and and to be honest, in the Intermountain West of like, you know, Nevada and and the mountains of California. And there's just not a lot of CRM firms doing geophysical surveys in those types of environments for, you know, good reason. So it's really cool to hear a CRM firm doing that. How has bringing geophysical methods into CRM changed or improved Ohio CRM archaeology? So we weren't the first ones to do it by any stretch in Ohio. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that set us off 20 years ago was that we were doing it a lot for ourselves. And so there's a, you know, you can do a lot more trial and error um, when you're the one digging up the horseshoe or whatever it is, you know, that was Mm -hmm. supposed to be a cooking pit. So we got pretty good at 
interpreting the magnetic data, you know. So we started to transition our, for example, our phase two work. Um, so in Ohio, it's phase one, two, three, as it probably is elsewhere, you know, find sites on phase one, assess sites for eligibility on phase two, and then, you know, phase three is data recovery. So uh, we we kind of focused in on phase two as that point at which, you know, should we bring the backhoe out or not? And we started moving away from bringing the backhoe out because mm-hmm. if the goal of the phase two is really just to determine if there's subsurface integrity, you know, and this site may be eligible for the National Register, then, hey, we can do that with a magnetometer because there's a lot of stuff in our region that's magnetic and it's pretty quick to find it with a magnetometer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our archaeology sites are, you know, half acre to two acres in size. And, um, you know, that's only like a day or, or two of magnetic survey with a handheld instrument back then, you know. So mm-hmm. we could we could cover the whole place, whereas before you might use your backhoe just to strip off a couple of 10 by 10 meter blocks or something like that, you know, and mm-hmm. you'd only sample a bit of it. So... Um, that's kind of the platform where we started to grow this approach and we had to show that it worked, you know, <laughs> many, <laughs> many times. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time going and doing surveys for nearby field schools, you know, interpreting the results and then say, hey, dig here and you'll find cool stuff. And that helped, you know, spread the word. And, you know, eventually people realized hmm, these guys know what they're doing. They seem to be able to find things with regularity and we, we gave kind of demonstrations, too, to our historic preservation office. And, uh, you know, the archaeology world's pretty small, so you kind of already all, know all these people and you see each other at conferences and such. So they began to see how this might be uh, not necessarily more cost-effective, but a more effective way. And, and it was up mm-hmm. to us to make mm-hmm. it more cost-effective. Mm-hmm. And so we worked hard at that. And, yeah, and that's how we kind of made it at least an integral part of our process. And it's become more common in Ohio, I think, because of how often we were doing it. We're not the only ones that that do geophysics in Ohio, of course. There are plenty of other people that do. So getting your historic preservation office interested in it and seeing that it is actually quite effective and can find the resources that are important to find while also preserving those resources, you know, because when you dig, you know, you're destroying what you're digging up. And those backhoes, while they're effective at finding buried features, they're also really effective at destroying stuff. Yeah. Um, what about clients? Is it tough to convince them that what you're doing <laughs> is not going to get their permit pulled and get them fined? Because, you know, you said there was nothing there via magic <laughs> and didn't actually dig anything. <laughs> so with clients, it's more like, so you say that works better. You know, why do we want to do that? <laughs> right? Because they don't want to uh, find archaeology. You know, they're, I mean, finding too most, much. yeah, you don't want to find too much. And it's like, well, again, that's up to, I mean, the preservation office wants you to find what's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's yeah. what the law, law really wants you to find that. So we're not trying to make your life harder. We're trying to make your life easier. So in fact, I mean, that's a really good question because we've had to, you know, before, even in Ohio, when we first started, it's like you find a feature. It's like, oh, my God, shut it down. You know, the, this site is eligible for the National <laughs> Register. You better change your plans. And now it's like, well, 
okay. I mean, if this is decent enough archaeology for us to be doing a geophysical survey on, there's probably going to be some features here. So we'll find them and then we'll assess whether or not they're all eligible for the National Register because, mm-hmm. in fact, there mm-hmm. are millions of features in the state of Ohio and, and other <laughs> places. And, you know, not every single post hole or little pit feature is going to make a site eligible, if you know what I mean. It's a, what? I know. It's so exactly people have lived, lived in Ohio for a while. <laughs> yeah, there were there have been a lot of people who have lived here over the years, and they really have liked digging into the ground, and um, they've left quite a record behind. And um, mm-hmm. in some cases, it, and I think one of you said that you'd worked in Ohio, so you know that there's just yeah. flint napping debris everywhere because there's so many mm-hmm. stone toolstone sources here that mm. um, it's hard to to not find it, you know, in every shovel test on a project, sometimes it seems that doesn't mean that there are subsurface features, you know, on mm-hmm. a site like that. So that's, that's another th- you know, thing we say is like, you know, um, sometimes you can get the wrong impression from the plow zone assemblage. It, it mm-hmm. may suggest that this site is amazing, but in fact, <laughs> you know, there's like nothing on, left of it underground or there never yeah. was anything there. So that's the kind of thing we can, we can help, puzzle out pretty quickly with geophysical mm-hmm. survey. Okay. Right. So nice. I, I just want a little more detail on, you said cost effective and cost effective, you know, one is who's paying the cost, but another part is there different ways you can measure it. You know, can you do more in a certain amount of time? Can you do a certain parcel faster or can you do it with more detail? Which, which way or do all three of those ways apply with what you mean by cost effective? Yeah, it's, it's all those things. So, you know, we, we often say, well, you know, what happens if you inadvertently find something and then you have to stop once you've got, you know, the really expensive construction people there, you don't want mm-hmm. that to happen. So uh, I'm not sure that ever happens in any universe that we know, but it's supposed to happen, right? If they inadvertently find things, they're supposed to stop and tell someone. It's certainly um, a fear from the developer standpoint. Yeah. So if we can find all that stuff ahead of time, and help mm-hmm. them avoid it or whatever they want to do, you know, th- then that's got to be cost effective because we're probably the least expensive part of what they're going to be doing, right? Mm-hmm. That road or that big building they're going to build is way more expensive than the archaeology. So if we can help them, you know, avoid delays in the expensive part of their project, then surely that's got to be cost effective for them. But also, we want to make the archaeology process cost-effective in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And so if we can do that faster or if we can do it with fewer personnel, obviously those are ways to help keep costs down. Or or if we can avoid bringing the backhoe out because, you know, backhoe operators make more money than we do. Mm -hmm. So. If we can, we can avoid bringing the heavy equipment on site, unless you really need it to strip off in an enormous area, then we can keep those costs down as well. So it's multifaceted. Yeah. I'm curious as to when you're doing this and and I'm not going to use phases because phases are defined differently across the country, but when Mm -hmm. you're doing, there's initial shovel, you know, wide scale shovel testing survey, then there's, you know, close interval, either shovel testing or test unit testing. And then there's full scale block excavation and some variations in between. What phase of those three things would you say you're using your geophysical methods on more, you know, initial survey, testing, or, you know, pre-full-scale excavation? Yeah. Uh, traditionally, it's the, the middle one, 
where okay. you're trying to get a finer grain look at an archaeological site. Yeah. Um, you're trying to, you know, really, really determine the distributional patterns of, you know, within the mid and, and around here, that's in the plow zone. Mm -hmm. um, you're also trying to locate pit features and other kinds of features, structures and all that. So that's kind of getting a better sense of where stuff is. That's the middle, middle part of this whole, you know, chain of processes. So traditionally we've done geophysics mostly at that point, but, mm. uh, you know, I can think of places where it can be used in the third step, you know, where data recovery, where you're digging large portions of a site. And of course, depending on which state you're in, that could be some sample of a site or it could be all of a site. Yeah. And it, of course, it depends on the size of the site too. But um, imagine if you're only doing a sample of a site and you don't have a good sense of where stuff is on that site, you could blow mm -hmm. your entire budget digging nothing you know <laughs> right which would be sad because right next door and this is the archaeologist nightmare you know one meter away is the golden idol that you missed so to speak um, <laughs> the most important thing out there well, so that's one great thing about geophysical survey is it, it can give you a whole lot more information that you can then use for sampling Right. Um, yeah. You're, you're not just relying on an artifact distribution. No, the nightmare is that you find that that idol in the balk on the last day. <laughs> right. Well, that's <laughs> that's just Murphy's law of archaeology. That's going to happen no matter what. I think. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah so um, it can work. It can work for you at the phase. You know, at that at the data recovery level or the the big excavation mm -hmm. level by by helping you direct your limited resources on those big excavations because you probably can't yeah. dig everything but you want to get some kind of sample so it not only finds archaeological features but it tells you certain things about them so mm. for example in a magnetic survey like a cooking pit is is likely going to be quite a bit more magnetic than say a storage pit mm. because there's been a fire or extremely hot rock or or maybe there's igneous rock you know down in the cooking pit whereas in mm. a storage pit it's basically empty you know except for it's been silted in or something you know so you can begin to differentiate feature types using geophysical data and uh, mm. that can really help you stratify you know your your sampling universe by saying hmm i probably don't want to dig 50 cooking pits and only one storage <laughs> pit maybe maybe i want to mix it up a bit you know mm -hmm. and, and since you know where they're all at you can also say well i don't want to dig you know, house, I don't want to dig 20 pits right outside house two. Maybe I should dig a few from house one, two, three, and four, or, mm. you know, however you want to do mm -hmm. it. So that's kind of nice. Um, it, it really helps with strategy and project planning, especially if it's done before, you know, you do that kind of thing, <laughs> right? So we've, for years, and, and I know probably everybody who does geophysical survey beats this drum, but, you know, don't just tack it on the end of a project because it's actually kind of expensive to just tack mm -hmm. on the end. Build it in as part of the project. Then it will be more cost effective because it can guide the whole project um, if it's done properly, of course. Sure. I think it's fascinating talking about the difference between storage pit and and, uh, and cooking pit, which gets to the point that you've been doing this. You know what you're looking at. You know what you're looking for. You have a certain amount of experience in interpreting the results of, of your survey. What's been your role in bringing geophysics to Ohio archaeology and how do you use it on the regular? 
I mean, my role in bringing it is just doing a ton of it. So mm -hmm. <laughs> like I was just sort of negotiating with my wife. I was like, hmm, would you mind if I go out on Saturday and do some geophysical survey? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I have an affliction. I can't stop doing it. But mm -hmm. mostly because, you know, it's it's like you guys with your podcast. I mean, this is this is show 160. Yep. You know, <laughs> you must be really excited about podcasting, just like I'm excited about geophysical survey. <laughs> so you, you see that it has merit and that it, it brings information to people. And, and that's the same for me. I, I see this as an amazing tool mm -hmm. and I like to learn more about it as much as I can. And, and I like to show people how it could enhance the kinds of things that they want to do. So that's been traditionally how I've brought it. Um, to Ohio and beyond, but also um, I, I help teach it to others. Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the National Park Service has had a geophysics workshop for archaeologists since the 1990s. And I've been fortunate enough to be an instructor in that since the early 2000s. So it's not only a place where I learn about the latest techniques, which is kind of handy, but I can also teach, you know, what I know to others and spread the love well, I will tell you, I wish somebody had told the company we were working for, the, my wife and I, the only project, I said I worked in Ohio, the only project we did was in Southern Ohio on the Rex East Pipeline. <laughs> and it was, yeah, I hear you the laugh. Too. Wait, yeah. did you um, say Rex East? <laughs> Does that mean Eastern Ohio? I don't know. That's just all they called it. it was Rex East. I don't know what it was East oh, okay. of, but that's what they so, called it. <laughs> well, we, we did we did some surveys for that pipeline, but apparently yeah. not in your area, unfortunately. Ooh, but we no. found quite a bit. Of, we found stuff. So, well, we sorry, were. Dude. I know we were pulled in and we were doing phase two, you know, testing. It was like, I think it was a half by half meter, like 50 by 50 centimeter, five meter grid testing. Basically Ooh, they just, they yeah, found stuff in shovel testing and then they plopped this five meter, five meter spaced grid down of like 25 or so shovel tests that were 50 buys. And that's what we did. And not only that, but it was like February and oh, early March and yeah. it was like five degrees was the high most days. Yeah. And that's kind of a brutal time in Ohio. Oh, it yeah. was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And to, that's when I do most of my magnetic surveys though. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not always brutal like that. You were just lucky, I think in that, <laughs> that year. Um, but it's, um, it's when the bugs and the poison ivy aren't out. So it's a great time oh, to be doing uh, magnetic uh, survey, uh, at least if it's not you're super not, cold. You're not really selling Ohio. It's either five degrees or there's bugs and poison ivy. So. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's everywhere in the east. That's true. That's actually true. true. Uh, at so. least north of north of a certain point. Yeah, 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 indeed, indeed. All right. Well, I think that's about time for our final break. We will come back and wrap up this discussion with Dr. Jared Burks. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to episode 160 of the Archaeotech podcast, and we are talking with Dr. Jared Burks. So I want to go in a slightly different direction than maybe CRM. I don't know. Maybe CRM is involved in some of this a little bit. But Ohio Earthworks, Ohio is relatively famous for 
earthworks. I mean, they're kind of all up and down this area of the country, but Ohio is just kind of like the mecca of earthworks. Can you first, for some people that may not be aware of this or, or what these really are, can you define what really constitutes an earthwork and, and what they traditionally are? And then we'll talk about how you've used geophysical surveys to help preserve and, you know, learn about them. Yeah. So earthworks are enclosures and mounds. Um, so we're all familiar with mounds because they seem to be everywhere mm-hmm. in this part of the world. But mm-hmm. enclosures are, are a bit more rare. And by enclosure, there are two types. There are earthen enclosures that are typically ditches with embankments or sometimes just embankments. And they're often in geometric shapes like circles in particular, mm-hmm. but also squares and octagons and some other unusual shapes. And then there are also enclosures that are made of wood. And we're talking like wood henge kind of thing. Mm. You know? So Cahokia has got a famous example, um, right. but that's relatively recent in time. And the ones we're talking about in Ohio are the, the more ancient ones from the woodland period. So, you know, about 2000 years old um, associated with this Hopewell and the thing that we call Adena. So it's just before Hopewell mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. in the Ohio Valley. Yeah, so we're on the lookout for both of those kinds of enclosures. Much easier to detect the earthen ones, a lot harder to detect the wooden ones because now they're just post holes. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty right. small. Yeah. Just as a quick aside before we get going, do you have any theories or have you read any theories about why there are so many earthworks in Ohio as compared to, say, other places? Because you're right, mounds are kind of all over the place. I mean, not really here in Nevada so much, but, you know, um, <laughs> at least in the, in the Midwest. Here in Nevada. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You guys said you were working on rock before. That's right. so that's right. You got to have some soil. <laughs> that's that's step, one. step one. Have dirt. <laughs> have um, dirt, yeah. So why really? Ohio? Yeah, um, I, you know, I don't know why there's so many here. It's <laughs> it's one of those that you guys always ask those questions. Why is that? <laughs> uh, but in part, it's it's because there has been a long tradition of earthwork building here. So hmm. mound construction began about a thousand BC here. So people were moving soil to create things as long as three thousand years ago. Now that's by far not even close to the oldest mounds um, mm-hmm. in the eastern United States. Those are down in the southeast. But, you know, why these geometric enclosures? That's the real big question. I, I still have this question. I can't seem to answer it. <laughs> um, I've worked on dozens and dozens and dozens of these sites and made all kinds of cool finds. And and still, you know, the most fundamental question, like why so many, is unanswered. Now, I can tell you one thing that I have learned and that is that we don't have a clue as to just how many are here because we are really only aware of the tip of the iceberg. Now, that's true for mm. all archaeology, of course. But as we've continued to do more geophysical survey, mm. we've accidentally encountered new undocumented enclosure sites. You know, So how often would you accidentally encounter something that's not you – know, unless it's really common – so just from those situations, I, I know that they're probably more common than we think. And, and by common, as of 1914, there was a book published then called The Archaeological Atlas of Ohio. Mm-hmm. It had 587 enclosure sites in Jeez. it. 
not all of those verified, but some of them include the really famous ones like Serpent Mound and mm-hmm. Popo Mound Group and, you know, place, Newark Earthworks, places everybody knows about. But there are a whole lot of really small ones that, you know, you've never heard of and plenty that I probably haven't heard of. Some of those are also unverified. Somebody wrote in, uh, like part of the way they found out about sites was people wrote in postcards saying, I have a mound on my farm. And then they sent it, the postcard <laughs> in the mail, you know, to Columbus and they they logged it in. And a, a lot of those got verified, but plenty of them didn't get a visit from an archaeologist or somebody. Mm. So we don't actually know if they're for real, you know, enclosures, but so many of those are. And unfortunately they were, they were compiled in this book, but you know, this was in um, 1914 before anybody could really map their locations precisely mm-hmm. or accurately, I should say. And they've since become lost because of the continued plowing. And many of them have been destroyed by all manner of things. Mm-hmm. What we also know is that there are a heck of a lot more out there that have never been recorded. And mm-hmm. some of my colleagues have been systematically examining aerial photographs, for example, you know, USDA photos, mm-hmm. kind of like we should probably be doing on all CRM projects <laughs> and uh, n- new ones that we didn't know about have been popping up because, Hey, nobody's actually done that before in Ohio, um, believe it or not. And uh, lo and behold, we've, I mean, I think he's found several dozen of these, you know, um, obvious ones and then some suspicious ones. So the presentation that Paul mentioned seeing with, about this great circle that I talked about mm-hmm. during the Ohio Archaeological Conference Council meeting, um, that was a new find by this fellow. His name is David Lamp. And mm. we, we were kind of working together a bit. He was he was really geeked up about examining these aerial photographs. <laughs> and so he would buy like a county's worth of these USDA photos from a particular year. And then after his kids would wind down and go to bed, he'd start looking at them systematically, you know, one after the other. After the other. And often wow. like at about 11 at night, I would get uh, a text from him, you know, like ping on my phone goes <laughs> off and I look at it and, and there's a, a photograph of his computer screen and there's a little circular thing on it. And he's like, oh, I think I found one. <laughs> and, cool. uh, you know, th- that went on for a couple of years. And I really, really enjoyed that period, you know, when he was making these discoveries. And because then, then my role was to sort of learn more about them and then see if I could get permission to go survey them. And that's the, Mm. that's a real hard part, as you probably know, getting access to private property can be challenging, but that, I actually want to ask you about that. Yeah. That big circle was one of his finds and we eventually got permission. Yeah. um, And you were talking about going out and work in winter because you don't have these, uh, these obstacles. One of the major obstacles you wouldn't have, it seems to be crops yeah, um, right. Crops. Which implies that you're working on farms. And I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you specifically, how do you how do you actually go about getting permission to get on people's private property in order to serve that survey them with your equipment? You know, that's it's challenging. You have to convince people often that that what like A, we already know it's there, so it's no great surprise to the world. We can show that it's there in an aerial photograph. So mm-hmm. we can register this with the state without whether we go survey or not. Um, but also people are mostly worried that the government is going to take their land mm-hmm. because something so amazing, you know, has been found there. And, and sure, these things are amazing, but the government's really not it, that interested in taking people's property. Mm-hmm. So it's largely an academic exercise, you know, us going out and surveying these things. And of course, our role is to get them registered with the state so that they're not inadvertently crossed by some pipeline or mm. 
whatever right. and you know inadvertently destroyed so that's you know why we're doing it and and a, a lot of landowners when you tell them that sort of things like oh so this could be beneficial actually uh, if we don't want <laughs> someone to take our property or to put in that <laughs> ah, utility line right. you know then yeah exactly and and some of our finds have been used in that way too Hey, I, I always tell people that like you go, they think if they go take off the, you know, the fun, good, fancy projectile points and stuff like that from a site that, you know, now somebody can't come in and take their land. I was like, it's actually the exact opposite of that. If you take away all the good stuff, then we can't evaluate it or we can't evaluate it as eligible. Therefore call in the bulldozers. You know what I mean? So yeah. Yeah, that's, exactly. Yeah. That's a lot of what it, it is it out here. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious. Yeah. Aside from like anything from prehistoric, like built environment, you know, like you've got the stone structures and stuff down in the Southwest. And of course the earth, her earthworks of the, the Midwest and Ohio, aside from that, just being super cool because it's, it's just different than like a projectile point or something else. It's something somebody built and you can see it and it's just neat. Aside from that, why the obsession with the earthworks? What, what else can you find associated with them? What are they indicative of, or is it, a number of things. Is it just all kinds of stuff? Like what, what do they usually tell you about what you could possibly find there aside from the earthworks? To get to the obsession question, (laughs) um, one of the reasons, one of the reasons I'm obsessed with them is because, you know, right tool, right place, right time. Yeah. I've got the, I've got the equipment to do it and I've got the time. Don't have any kids. My wife is forgiving mostly. And so, (laughs) you know, I can do it, you know, just why did those guys back in the 1800s spend all that time and effort to map the earthworks back then? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because they were interested. They wanted to know where these people came from. They had the time and the money to do it. So, you know, it's probably some of that too. You can probably see that happen over and over and over in any scientific discipline. And I'm hoping someone will eventually figure out how to do cold fusion you know, in their garage <laughs> for the same reason. But, yeah. Um, so as to like, like why study these places, it is part of my research and I see it as a way for me to contribute, you know, other than my day job. These things were made, you know, before corn agriculture, before people lived in villages and kind of right at the cusp mm. of what it was to, to be a farmer. Um, we often refer to them as horticulturalists because we don't want to use the F word farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, with these folks because it, it's before corn, but they're growing domesticates, kinopodium, little barley, knotweed, sunflower. They must mm-hmm. be growing them in fairly large numbers because they suddenly appear in the archaeological record in fairly large numbers. They're, you know, like every Hopal site has these crops at it. And before, sure, you find it once in a while, but it's kind of rare. So, you know, there's something happening at that time period. And not only are they growing these domesticates kind of all of a sudden, but they're also spending a tremendous amount of time, you know, moving dirt to build these earthworks, some of which are a thousand feet across and Hmm. are aligned to major astronomical events that only happen once a generation, like the Hmm. northernmost moonrise on the eastern horizon. The Newark earthworks, part of them, are, are aligned to that event, you know, like, you can't just observe that every night and then decide, oh, let's build an earthwork so we don't have to, you know, break out the telescope <laughs> to see it. We can just sit there and watch it rise, you know, in in the spot. Well, somebody yeah. had to sit there and watch it rise over the course of like 
you know, a whole generation to know that. So people must have known, you know, that the moon swings back and forth on the eastern horizon, you know, every day as it as it rises. And then there must be a northernmost point. And so we like this spot, so we're going to figure out where that is. And now we're going to build this amazing facility to observe this event. And won't that be mm. amazing, you know, when when you can wow your neighbors and say, hey, you know what? I'll bet the moon rises right there, you know, in that opening in the earthwork. You watch. And then, you know, <laughs> you can you can seem really impressive. Um, so, you know, why did they do that? Yeah. It had to be a very important part of their lives to be able to do that sort of thing. So what I find intriguing is that this kind of way of life, you know, building monumental architecture at this scale, but then living in a dispersed community because their settlements aren't very large, at least like you might expect a village to be where there are multiple households there. We're talking Mm -hmm. a settlement is one or two houses. Now there may be a neighbor, you know, half kilometer away and the next neighbor may be another half kilometer away. But so these, these communities are dispersed across the landscape. So it's not like urban living. So how do you get those people together, you know, in the same place? Well, it could be something like these earthworks are public meeting places. They're also burial grounds and, Mm -hmm. you know, all, they serve all these functions and that kind of way of life, it just doesn't really exist today in any great number. You know, it's, it was a way of life that came and went. And so we really don't have opportunities to figure out, you know, why people did what they did in those kinds of settings, except with these archaeological contexts, you know, like these earthworks sites and these folks who yeah, built them. Cool. Yeah. So Jared, I can hear the enthusiasm <laughs> as you're talking about these earthworks <laughs> and what they meant societally. So you're not just using the geophysical survey because it is cool whiz bank technology, but you're using it to explore something that you like, these earthworks, recording them and hopefully preserving some of them. One of the projects you're involved with is the Heartland Earthworks Conservancy. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you do with them? Yeah, so we're a, a small nonprofit. And by small, I mean, you know, one of those all volunteer things. There are just a handful of us. And uh, our mission has been, and we've been around since 2010. I helped found it, but the, the guy who founded it, the, the real heart and soul back then, um, has since passed away tragically um, from cancer. So we've had to sort of, you know, take the torch and keep it going. And mm-hmm. for me, it's always been the geophysical stuff because that's what I can do. Mm-hmm in the, the archaeology part, but we've always been about research at these places to learn more about them, educating the public about them, because, I mean, these things are in their backyards, literally, often, and then trying to preserve some sample of them, because even though we have archaeological parks like the Newark Earthworks or Hopewell Culture National Historical Park or Serpent Mound, mm-hmm. you know, that's like three earthworks out of what are probably thousands, you know, so <laughs> I'd like to boost the sample a bit. Yeah, if we can. And so just accidentally, um, we discovered that these geophysical survey maps, especially when the earthworks are kind of obvious in them, people just, they really can identify with that because they can, they can see it for themselves, you know, what's underground. And uh, you might walk across, you know, one of the challenges with these places is a, they're really big. So even if they're well-preserved and they have a topographic expression, it's mm-hmm. hard to see them because they're a thousand feet across sometimes. So you can't hardly see from one side to the other. 
but also they had, most of them have been plowed pretty flat. So right. what's left of them is below ground. So, but in these magnetic maps, it's like, wow, look at that. I can see it. And the other thing too, is that you, we almost always find new things in the geophysical surveys when we go out and look at these sites, you know, stuff that didn't appear in the old maps that, you know, that, that infects us with excitement and people can, can hear that in our voices and see it when we give talks. And so they get the infection. We call it earthwork fever. Uh, and they just get really excited about it. So um, <laughs> it's a nice way to uh, engage the public and direct efforts to preserve this important cultural heritage that's all around us. Well, that's fantastic. All right. Well, we are just about out of time, but I've got, I mean, this is a tech podcast, so I've got to get this one last question in here just in the last couple of minutes. What are some future or, or maybe stuff that is currently being worked on um, geophysical survey advances that you think will be important for archaeology? And one thing I haven't heard mentioned was LIDAR. I don't know how effective LIDAR is in finding these, but it seems like it would be. But what else have you seen that is coming down the line that could help you find more of these? Well, I want to say that LIDAR is, um, I didn't mention it because it's so darn common in Ohio <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, the, the the whole state was flown in 2000 six or so really and so we i mean it's just topographic data right so it's just really yeah. good topographic data and um the earthworks a lot of them look gorgeous in it so that's nice, nice. Um, and I, I can sit in my underwear at home and you know make really <laughs> cool maps and that's awesome uh, so on those really frigid days where i don't want to go outside i just work on lidar maps but um, nice. what's coming down the pike is incredibly exciting for me and that is landscape scale survey with both magnetometry and ground penetrating radar they've hmm. been doing it in other parts of the world for quite a while for some odd reason, it's just never made it here. And maybe that's because our market can't bear the cost of that. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, you know, those, those, that equipment is really expensive. Um, mm -hmm. So now that there's a bit more demand for it, it, it's a little bit more attainable for even CRM guys like us. Yeah. So towing a magnetometer array and surveying, you know, an entire field in a couple of days, we can do that. Right. We have done that. So um, <laughs> that's really exciting. And then um, the other cool thing is um, that's happening in radar too. So radar traditionally is, you know, it's very laborious. It creates a, a ton of data. And so it takes a long time to process it. Mm -hmm. We're almost to the point where we can tow a radar around and, um, and you know, collect so much data that they now call it 3D radar, which is it's basically a smack in the face of people who only have, you know, one channel radar system. So these are, <laughs> these are like 20, 20 radars all connected together, you know, into one system. So it's very high density and it's the same technology that was used in Europe to find those, those uh, Viking longhouses and the ship burials oh, right. recently. Mm -hmm. You've seen that in the news. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, that's amazing. I wish we could do that. Well, well we can, um, we're, we're, you know, we're right at that point now where that's going to be possible here too. So I'm, I'm thinking that some big discoveries are going to come from that kind of technology when we start doing it as phase one level stuff, you know, there's probably a lot of features out there that we just never find because there aren't a significant number of artifacts with them. Dr. Jared Brooks, thank you so much for being on with us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. I'm going to wrap this up because Chris's internet connection just dropped. 
where it's really flaky up here. <laughs> but this has been a very interesting discussion. And I really encourage our, uh, our listeners to go and watch the YouTube video that we'll have linked. Because again, it, it's some of the best magnetometry that I've ever seen. And it's exciting that you're tying it into historical preservation, into you know your local environment in Ohio, um, all these things in teaching <laughs> that really matter to me and I'm sure to a lot of our listeners. So uh, thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.